Hey, Paul. What's up? Hey, hey, what's up, Bill? Ah, uh, did did you get a book done for this week? No, I I, I just can't. I haven't been able to. Wait, but you? But you did you get anything? Well, no, but but you're the producer, man. Yeah, but Professor Allen, right? Oh God, don't tell me. Uh, is he's he's freaking everywhere. I know. Ever since we let him be on the show, it's it's like the guy's nonstop. Everywhere I go, he's there. Blowed up my Facebook, leaving messages. I mean, how did he get my home number? That's what I want to know. I don't. I don't oh, damn, there he is. Oh. I, you think he saw us? No, no. Hey. Um, oh, damn it. He spotted us. Shh. It was great talking to you last time. Uh, how you guys doing? Uh, when was I going to be on again? I forgot. When did we schedule that for? Uh, I think the internet's broken. I mean, it's not just me. I know Emily. Emily really wants to be on. She'd be great. I Come on, Emily. I Emily. I... Hi. Hi. Hey, Emily. How are you? Okay. Come on. You've, you've, got, you've got a book ready, right? No. You just dragged me over here to talk to your weird old friends. Yeah, sorry, you know, Alan... Uh... Bill and I didn't prep any books, so uh, I don't think we're recording a show today. Oh, no, we're ready. Em- Emily and I can do it. We've got books. What? Emily, Emily, what? go get a book. I... Synopsis, a prep, uh, okay. an indie. Uh, uh, indie? I don't read indie. Get something obscure. Okay. Smile, Apollo, Angel, whatever Apollo, you got. Apollo, smile. Jesus. Oh, please, no. You know, I can't find any of those anymore. I don't know. They all disappeared from eBay. Um. I... I've got some like they, first comics or from like a does that that counts? I, I, that counts, yeah. Okay. The all the Apollo smiles I bought off eBay haven't quite gotten here yet, so just find what you can. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, I got that. Back to the bin. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my normal co-host, Dr. William Robinson. Hello. And we are joined today by uh, Professor Allen. Glad to be back, Paul. Thanks and, for asking me. I appreciate and, it. I mean, I would have come on last week, I mean, I, but I appreciate You know, it's, things got busy, but... With so many emails you've got flooding in, and it's great. We wanted to work it out with Emily because she really wanted to be on the show. That was really the main thing. It was really all about getting Emily on the show with me. Yeah, glad to be here. Hey, Emily had a great recording with the Back to the Bins guys. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. They said they'd love to have me on. Oh, yeah, that's that's great. Right. One catch. Really? Well, you have to be on, too. Do I have to? Well, I mean, just... I mean, I paid college tuition, car insurance for quite a number of years. I mean, I'm not going to say you owe me, but come on. If you get on, I can be back on. Really? Fine. Hey, I don't think we got a law out of you guys. Law. Law. 
There we go. That's the best I got. That's not bad. It's not bad at all. In the presence of greatness here, it's tough. I just suspect you sit there working on your law, like looking in the mirror and working on your law. (laughs) I do work on my Batman. I have a much better Batman. I'm Batman. Oh, that's not bad. Swear to me! Swear to me! (laughs) All right, so uh, Bill and I are just going to sit back and put up our feet and uh, listen to you guys do some books. So this is pretty much that was my feet. No, this is <laughs> this is the debut of Shortbox Showcase on the Two True Freaks Network. Awesome. awesome! I knew one day it would happen. It's only a matter of time. I tell you, this is great. Well, the the Two True Freaks Empire is little <laughs> by little taking over all the, taking over the world. Doom would be proud. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So do we work for Dumanzo? Oh. After the after. Let's just say it was a hostile takeover. A very hostile takeover. We that's what we should do. We should have Doom Monza Court month. <laughs> On the fact that it bids. Doom Monthly Monday. Doom Commentary Monthly Monday. They do a Fantastic Four movie. We can definitely come up with plenty of Doom stuff. It's not like he hasn't appeared in things. I mean, for a long time he was the uh I, I think you even talked about it in the Fantastic Cast, or somebody brought it up that he was he was the go-to guy. Every every hero had to face off against him at some point as their baptism of fire. Mm-hmm. We could have Walking Doom Wednesday. Because <laughs> if you want to be the man, you got to beat the man. Mm-hmm. Of course, that would imply that he's been beaten by everyone. Eh, minor technicality, the minor setbacks, strategic withdrawals. Thank Long you. series of strategic withdrawals. <laughs> 50 years. Dr. Doom's not Strate- French, is he? <laughs> <laughs> and I've insulted our French contingent. Thank you. Good night. We're Usually, actually excited. We, we are actually seriously excited to be here. We were sort of thinking about our podcast listening history and our two, two true freaks history. And Emily and I have concluded that it was, in fact, back to the bins. It's true. That brought us, as listeners, to Two True Freaks way back, episode nineteen with the Super Future Friends. Yep. Mm. All the way, all the way back in yon incredibly early days. And that's then how sadly, we ended up... I can't take any credit for anything because I wasn't there then. Yeah, sorry, Paul. Yeah, thank it's God. Sad. <laughs> take enough but credit as it is. I hardly get <laughs> No, we 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 appreciate not not only is this back to the bins, you're getting back to the you're getting back to the roots, the original format, the cross generational, the young upstart punk, and the seasoned comics book veteran. Is that right, Em? Eh, close enough. Oh, they're t- oh, you're talking about you guys. That means now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which of you is a young pump, a young upstart? I don't. Well, that well, compared lo- to me, he's the young punk. <laughs> That's right. I'll be forty-five this year. You'll be what, forty-five <laughs> hundred? <laughs> Not nearly. All right. I what? Remember. Fifty-one. Fifty. In, in the calendar year of two thousand and fourteen, I will turn fifty-two. Oh, so you'll be the DC Universe. Yes. Mm. No comment. I know. Uh, no. No, no well, comments we'll be the after newest that. Fifty-two. The new fifty-two. Is 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 he going to reboot himself? Is he going to retcon himself? Is he going to the Spataro crisis? 
<laughs> crisis on infinite crisis. Actually, I think from what I can tell, most of his run as producer on Back to the Bins has been a crisis mode. So, <laughs> hey, what I didn't. Oh, but speaking of which, uh, which which of you guys has the DC for this episode? That would be Doctor Bill. Uh, would be would be is the operative term. Um, okay, we can move right to the Marvel then. Wait, wait. Uh, does anybody have any comic news or anything? Anything new this week? And I guess that's a no. <laughs> All Star Western is not canceled this week. I'm going to hold on to that little glimmer of hope for another it's two on, or three uh, weeks. It's on, uh, still on life's... Well, there was a rumor earlier in the day we saw that it had been canceled. But... So it's right on the bubble? I would assume so. What is the bubble nowadays with uh, circulation with books getting dropped? It sells less than ten copies. <laughs> <laughs> circulation. You can't pay can. people to take it. It's mm. got to be somewhere around yeah, 15,000, 20,000. I mean, the reality is what used to get a book canceled now makes it a top seller. It is amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Mm. And that's why they charge you 4 or $5 an issue now. Well, technically, they charge me 25 cents usually. <laughs> yeah, that's, mm. that's why we shop in the cheap bins. <laughs> but I, I got to think, I, I mean, I don't know. And let's, as long as we have Professor Allen on, we could talk a little bit of uh, economics with comics. And that was, wait, wait, that wait, rhyme, wait, that wait, rhyme wait, was wait, unintentional. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on. And now it's time for economic talk with Professor Allen. I mean, when we get into the lore of diminishing returns, is there a point, Professor Allen, where the current economic model doesn't make sense that you would think that they could get a much larger audience with a cheaper price? Or... Are they just maximizing their profits out of the same audience that they'd have no matter what the price would be? I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> and, Great answer! And that was... Like I tell my students, like I tell my students, when you're faced with a trick question, it's not a trick give question. A, I'm give a trick answer. It's an opinion no, I, question. It is not a... Because uh, obviously you don't have the raw data in front of you. No, I... You know... I think that it's no coincidence that the two big comic book companies are small parts of big media conglomerates. And from their perspective, if DC and Marvel break even as, as entities, that's fine to Disney and Warners because they just need the, – the characters need to have enough of a presence so that there's an audience for the movies – audience for the TV shows, and I th almost as important, perhaps more importantly, is the merchandising. That's really the hidden uh, cash cow of these properties. But you have to have viable properties for there to be T-shirt sales and backpack sales and Iron Man showing up at your door on Halloween. So you, they, the, the comics need to maintain a presence, but they do not need to make money for the for the uh, conglomerates. Well, the word I'm hearing from various sources, not from uh, any uh, you know definitive source, just word on the street kind of thing, although I don't know how much word on the street there is about comic books, but what I'm hearing is that right now Warner's attitude towards the DC books that they're publishing is profit or go away. Hmm. That's why that, you know, at least the 
the speculation is that's why they have so many of the tried and true, you know, let's put out Superman and Wonder Woman instead of taking a chance on a book that might fail. You know, let's let's have more Batman books. Let's have more Superman books. Let's have more Justice League books. Yeah, probably on on, on a book to book basis. There's certainly a minimum, and there's certainly a, there's a point at which even if you're viewing the entire business enterprise as a break even or as a loss leader, that certainly certain items in there when they are hemorrhaging that much money, uh, they have to go. You know, I I just don't know. You know, right now the the model is at three ninety nine for for a a hard copy of the book. Let's leave the digital uh, market aside. Uh, but if if you, if it's three ninety nine for a hard copy and they're selling say fifty thousand copies of that book, if they would drop to drop it to say one ninety nine, I mean you'd have to factor in the production costs and everything. But and obviously you'd have to do more than double. To just maintain the profit level, you probably have to do two and a half times as much. Right. Is that a feasible market? I don't know. Yeah, but I if, think if I, I, I think if it were, they would try it and they would do it. I mean, I think they're not dummies. I think creative decisions are occasionally dumb. You know, we could argue editorial type of decisions can be dumb. But I think on the business side, I think you no, know, they would try it. Yeah. I, I, I think the bigger problem for the comic book companies is the infrastructure of retail. I, I think comic book stores, as the main source for purchases, is a problem. Yeah, that, that's not I mean, just we remember back when we were kids where we bought comics from. And that's, well, they, they got it show back up in drugstores and then grocery stores and then other convenience stores, other retail spaces. Well, if they lowered their digital price to 99 cents, and I'm, I, this was recently discussed on one of the Legion of Dudes shows, so some of this, if you guys listen to that, you'll, you know, this is going to be, sound a lot of the same. Uh, if they drop that, I mean, they, they don't, you don't have a production cost, really, minimal, compared to actually printing a physical copy of a book, but yet they still charge almost, you know, it, it, the price does come down on the digital, but why aren't they sent? They, they could probably sell tons of those copies at, at 99 cents. I would probably start buying a lot more at 99 cents digital what copies. I, what, I also, what I say with that, too, is that $3.99 or $2.99 for a digital copy is encouraging people to pirate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Whereas 99 cents, 99 cents, people might say it's not worth pirating, it's not worth you know, doing that, I might as well just buy it. You know, what's it going to cost me? $30 a month and I'll get all my books anyway? Yeah, it's the Napster iTunes discussion is as soon as you can make it cheap enough that it's actually more convenient rather than going through the hassle of trying to get a digital copy that maybe has some sort of weird markings on it in order to prove that it's not an original and having to go through the problems of finding a legitimate quote-unquote source that's not going to download a ton of viruses that's that's really your question is there it's a it's just cost versus convenience yeah and and it seems to me like the comic book industry is not learning from the music industry yeah whereas it seems to me that the movie industry has like they they've made digital copies you know some of them are a little too pricey but 
there are plenty out there that are reasonably priced, and you don't expect to get a movie for $0.99. Cents. I don't think that's a reasonable price point on it. Uh, but there's certainly, you know, people are buying movies and, and TV shows off iTunes where I think a lot of people are not buying the digital comics. Yeah, I think, for me, part of the issue from the uh, customer side, the consumer side, is that we are collectors. And if we could be satisfied, and I've started to barely come to this realization myself, that I'm a comics reader. I don't have to be a comics collector, certainly not a comics investor. That's just crazy. Uh, But if I consider myself just a comics reader, then something like the Netflix model would work. Sort of a, you know, you, you go to Netflix, you watch something, you watch a TV show, you watch a movie, you're not upset that the next day you don't own it. Mm-hmm. Right? It was never in your brain. It was never in your, your expectation of the business transaction that you would end up owning that thing. You just watched it. And if we could sort of get out of our heads this idea that we have to own it after the fact and could just be satisfied with reading, then maybe something like a Marvel Unlimited type of idea where you have access to a library, which is all Netflix is. You're not buying stuff from Netflix. You're happily paying a monthly fee to watch all that you can. I think for, for broad comic book appeal, I think you have to do some sort of all-you-can-eat, all-you-can-read sort of model where I can sit on the beach, sit on the subway, sit in class while my students are taking a test, and <laughs> And sit there and read two, three, four, five issues. I think, not, I think and, you're and, right on the and, money with that. Yeah, and for not, that not to cost me 10 or 15 bucks to sit there. To have paid whatever it is, 8 bucks a month, 20 bucks, you know, whatever. Well, I, I think Marvel Unlimited is approximately $60 for the year, which seems to me to be a pretty good price point. Yeah, Basically, J- it's like $5 a month. J. Dave Reader has mentioned that numerous times that he's doing read-throughs on, on, that, on that service. Now, I don't know how many months behind they are on new books. Well, that's, that's what I was just going to say. I understand one of my friends subscribes to it. He says they're about five months behind, which does not seem unreasonable to me if they maintain that five-month gap on a steady basis. You know, you know you're going to get the books... You know, they're going to keep coming on a steady basis. The problem that I'm hearing is that there's gaps in what's presented, though. So you'll have, you know, a, a run, and there'll be key, mis- key issues missing from the run. Hmm. Again, they do that with Netflix, too. There's some, you know, you don't get a full season. You get yeah, 20 of the 22 episodes, that sort of thing sometimes. So I don't understand the logic behind that. Well, some of them might be uh, on the Netflix episodes. Maybe there was something they couldn't get a release for or... Yeah, could, oh, but could that's the music, that sort of thing. Mm. No, I, that's, that's oh. just to get you to buy the trade. Probably. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what yeah, I'm I, thinking. And I think the five to six month delay is very reasonable. That's basically what I do now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm, I'm reading in trades. New books, quote unquote, to me, are books that are six month old. That, that's new. Because, um, you know, if, if, if you read through trades, that's, so I think a five to six month delay is, is not unreasonable for an unlimited type of scenario. Do I mean, you, they, they, have, they have to give some incentive to actually purchase. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and again, that's, that's what Netflix does. I mean, their you know, movies come out, and it's, it's, it's changing all the time, but 
it's in the theater, then it's on TV, then or then it's on HBO, or then it's on the DVD, and then it's you know those are all different licensing deals for different periods of time and so forth. Hmm. Bill keeps talking about do. Do 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 do. No, I <laughs> I I, I kind of answered my own question. I, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I I I was Glad just thinking. Glad we can help. Do do they have uh, digital trades? And I'm sure they do. Like when a trade comes out, I guess they yeah. put it out di- uh, as a digital as well. I just I'm pretty sure that they do. Yeah. Never That's mind. sort of what I feel is that comics really need to take a page out of web comics of having digital content that, you know, it could still be paid digital content, doesn't have to be free digital content, that if you want to have it the week of release or, or like with Marvel Unlimited a couple months late and you can actually consume your comics in that way and then selling primarily in trades. Because that sort of does seem like there's two concepts of comics done there, that there's the comics readers and the consumers and there's the people who want to physically own it and have the collections. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think Emily's on to something there because I think that, as she said, a number of success successful web comics do that where the, the content daily or weekly is free, maybe on an ad-supported you know, web page, but the but the content to the user is free, and then if you want the actual the only bound printed version, then is is purchased after the fact. That's the only thing that that has a cost to it. And now, with and with um, nooks and things like that, and the rise of e-readers, that's sort of been happening to some degree, even with print books. That um, I was listening to an episode of Writing Excuses, and they were talking about a small publishing house that only does small limited runs where they're selling books, you know, popular, famous books like Hunger Games and selling them in these very nice formatted, high quality, prestige quality books and selling them almost as collectibles. Whereas if you want to read it, well, you probably just bought it for $1.99 on your e-reader of choice. And then if you want to have something to put on your shelf, then you've got this really nice leather bound, engraved, high print quality copy that they make maybe like two, three hundred of rather than mass producing in paperbacks because people aren't buying paperbacks as much. They're just going to buy them on their Kindle. Oh, you yeah, said you, know, if, you said Nook. Yeah. I thought you said Canuck, and that's going to scare Scott Gardner <laughs> even more. We're not, I do have Captain Canuck. We did not bring that to the table this episode, though. Maybe, maybe if you have me back sometime, I could stop. That's what we could have Scott back, and you could do Captain Canuck. That way, Scott's forever off the hook. <laughs> no, actually, just, you know, this... uh, I'm, I'm going to just totally interject something that has nothing to do, do with the conversation, but I just came to the realization that other than someone's spouse yelling at them in the background, uh, this is the first time that there's ever a girl on Back to the Bins. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, really? Back to the Bins, Back to the Bins, 19, the Super Future Friends. Yeah. Gonna... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the show has officially passed the Bechdel test. Uh-huh. There you go. Had three. Yeah, Paul, there well, were shows before you, remember? Okay, well, <laughs> since, since I've been on, in the, in the time I've been on, this is the first <clears throat> girl. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so, was that all we had for uh, Comic Talk? I, I have a little bit of a Comic Talk thing, real, real quick. And, oddly enough, it, it ties back into Professor Allen. Uh on my little trip this evening before we started recording, I made a quick stop by the mall to my local comic shop, and they had a bunch of graphic novels, uh, 65% off. And they had Fantastic Four, The Master of Doom, 
It's like issue five. Oh, I can't remember. It's like 562 to 568. Somewhere in that range. And it's and it says that this is the person who is above Doom. Have you ever read this, Professor Allen? Doom's Master? That sounds like somewhere somewhere between heresy and blasphemy. (laughs) There are none above Doom. Well, if you know about it, don't tell me because I wanted to be a surprise because I haven't read it. So I am uh, familiar with it. Oh, is my, any... my son went to trade at New York Comic Con last year. Uh, yeah, this this was like a hard hard cut cover edition. I got it for about, I think about six bucks. All right, so so here's, I will not they spoil live the story for you, mm-hmm. but ask yourself this: It's a hardcover edition, and it's six dollars. Why is that? Well, no, it because it, it was sixty five percent. It was like sixty five or something percent off. That's that's like have... when, when they overprice something so that they can discount it. Oh well, like the back cover price was twenty something, I think, or mm-hmm. eighteen. Well, yeah. Well, that's you why I got. It. It's selling I found for a few good books. Oh yeah. Oh, you're saying it's not that good? Oh. I was not a fan of that run. Mm. Well, I figured some easy reading while I'm in the um, facilities. So to speak. I mean, you could read it. Maybe you'll like it. I, I didn't think Miller got the characters when he was writing the book. Did he write it, or did you? Who does who, who does he draw with? Is usually his draw. That was, uh, I think, Steve Epting. Oh, really? Oh, okay. They also had a bunch of uh, black and white essentials. Uh, you guys don't need any specific essentials, do you? They had uh, Avengers, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Defenders. Uh, Ghost Rider, tons of different ones all on sale. So tell me now. I'll run up there tomorrow. Grab them. Not, not me. I'm, I'm 90, cool. 95% DC over here. Ah. Right, uh, the, I, the, only one, the only one. No, I'm a Marvel guy. The only one. Uh, they had well, DCs I, I mean, as well. They had some Justice League as well. Oh. But the only the only one that I, I've particularly looked for is the first Tomb of Dracula one. But that's actually kind of rare, and the, you will not find that in a discount bin. Mm. Yeah. I thought I heard something that the Essentials line might actually be going away. I know I thought saw Scott Reifen a couple weeks ago had mentioned something on Facebook about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I heard the same thing, and I I think it was from Scott that I had heard it. Mm. Well, the only other slight comic thing I have to is that uh, I actually had a I had a comic book dream today. All right, so uh, Alan, you got a book? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to say dream or more sleep deprived hallucination. I probably both, probably both, because of my schedule the past week. But uh, um, basically, I was in some type of dream where I somehow became Simon Williams, Wonder Man. But a, I was in a room with other people, and for some reason I was really sad. And I had like the tank top uh, Simon Williams T-shirt with the big W on it, and my eyes were all glowing red and all that. And and uh, you know, so I was watching it. I wasn't in. I I wasn't in first person. I was watching the dream as like a movie. So myself is sitting there, and er- everybody in the room. You know, gets all quiet, and then I turn and I look, and it's the Scarlet Witch is there, and I'm happy to see her. And and in the dream, I realize that I'm looking at my wife as the Scarlet Witch, 
And then I woke up and I was all happy and I was like, wow, that was pretty cool. So that was my that was We're my not laughing at you. We're <laughs> laughing with you, assuming you're laughing. I thought it was pretty cool. I'm 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 not laughing. That's awesome. <laughs> Paul Spatara, there you are. That's your you're you're the master of the house. There you go. Now, now I have to do a Does parody. that make you Helena Bonham Carter? Me? You're welcome. Oh. Yes. I'm not wearing a dress. <laughs> maybe a corset or a camisole or a teddy, but that was another show, and maybe you guys didn't hear that. And maybe oh, no, I'll just oh, stop. No, maybe I'll that. stop talking right that. there. I heard fashion talk <laughs> with designer Bill, and and the follow up with Luke Jacanetti. Well, well, Luke knew what they that. were. I just wasn't sure what the difference. Oh, was. you just said words, and then Luke schooled you. Yeah. yeah. Luke, Luke knew the difference between a teddy and a camisole. We're used to this feeling. <laughs> yeah, being schooled by Luke. Usually not about uh, about female clothing, though. It's usually about war comics or werewolf comics or something like that. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of comics, I guess it's time to finally get to the comics. Well, I... Wow, I was such... So speaks you're, Bill. You're really, you're really <laughs> not going to let him say it, though. This is like the third time he started to describe his book. <laughs> I'm sensing some anti-Doom sentiments here. Look, I've got to teach a class in 11 days. Can we just get through this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to spend all my spring break here. I have brought them. I've brought the, today's Marvel to the table. Uh, Doom 2099, issue number 31. And, you know, picking a Doom issue was tricky for me because, I'll be honest, I mean, I've covered Doom issues on the Fantastic Cast. But I did the math, and I calculated that Steve and Andy would be getting to Doom 2099 around 2099. <laughs> so I thought it was safe to talk about it here. Uh, this is issue 31. The issue, for context, issues 29 through 35 were the one Nation Under Doom storyline. Uh, it was a move uh, that Im- impacted all of the 2099 universe. As it is, Doom decided to take uh, you know a hands-on approach to saving the world from itself. So if you look at the cover of the book, it actually says Doom 2099 AD, which of course in this context stands for After Doom. Uh, but before I get to 31, Scott, I got to do a quick recap of 29 and 30. Uh, Doom announced that he was claiming the U.S. presidency for himself, reasonable, styling it a second American revolution, landed in Washington, made his way straight to the Oval Office, leaving in a wake the path of bodies of the unenlightened, the last being the president himself, the now late former president. Surprised Doom with the honorable act of taking his own life. Doom met with the heads of the megacorps, who pretty much rule the country and are the cause of its sorry state of affairs. Is this Doom 2014? Or Doom 2099? Okay. I think that would be Uh, Obama 2014. (laughs) (laughs) So the leaders of the megacorps are uh, gathered by Jake Gallows, Punisher 2099. And appropriately, Doom's Minister of Punishment. Because if Doom's running the cabinet, there's going to be a Minister of Punishment. Would that be Hillary Clinton? (laughs) 
we just ask Bill Clinton. That's all we have to ask. Just ask Bill Clinton. Uh, now, Doom is going to hold these corporate leaders responsible for their actions, and as a demonstration, he will kill one person in the room, but the megacorp leaders have to pick. So they vote to kill Avatar. He's got multiple R's at the end of his name. Avatar, the CEO of Alchemex Megacorp. Avatar claims that Doom can't kill him, and Doom then blasts a hole right through his eye. And this issue, issue 31, starts at that exact moment. So, Doom 2099, number 31, cover date of July 1995, titled American Dream. It is a Stan Lee presentation. The writer was Warren Ellis, who took over the book about six months before. The guest artist for this issue is David Klein, with Pat Broderick having done the entire run to this point and doing a fabulous job at it, by the way. So, after shooting Avatar, a weird green blood-like substance points out, Interesting, President Doom comments. The laser I fired into your head was, it seems, an underestimation. The president scans the wound and discovers that Avatar is not a mutant as he suspected. He is, in fact, an alien. Probably an illegal alien from across the border somewhere in outer space. An alien unlike any alien Doom has encountered before. The Punisher volunteers to finish the job, but President Doom makes the reasonable point that there's certain things that his administration will tend to personally. Avatar spits on President Doom with a hallucinogenic acid. His body shows the ability to regenerate into new shapes. After Doom cuts into his torso, sharp spikes grow out of the wound and eventually break through the eye slits in Doom's mask. Avatar mocks the new American leader. You are a lungfish, a wet, uninvolved thing gulping in the oxygen of power you were never meant to know. See the richness in which I perceive the world. How dare you claim to be greater than me? At which point, Doom abdicates, tucks his tail between his legs, and slumps back to Latveria. Not! Doom does begin to feel the effects of the hallucinogenic venom acid stuff. And everything around him turns a little trippy and kaleidoscopic-ish. Avatar strikes Doom down, apparently for good. But as Avatar attempts to claim leadership for himself, Doom rises and deals a fatal blow. Seeing through the alien's own perceptions, Doom learned of the being's fatal weakness. He then proceeds to pound Avatar into a green, bloody pulp. Because that's what we need presidents to do. Get off my plane! <laughs> Weakened from the encounter, Doom needs Punisher to help him out of the room. One of the executives murmurs in shock the basic premise of the entire 2099 universe. This can't be true. There's no such thing as space aliens. Just like all the old heroic age fables. Blind vigilantes in red leotards, magicians on Bleecker Street... That all never really happened. This has to be fake. Seething with drug-induced anger, Doom proceeds to address the nation and puts Avatar's corpse on display on live television. As you do. 
He points the blame for a decade of American misery under the megacorps at the people who let this happen, the American public themselves. You will all make restitution for this horror you have perpetrated. He orders incomes to be tithed to the government and increases martial law, blah, blah, blah. After closing his speech with a rousing, to the devil with you all, he passes out. In the days that follow, Doom does implement change. Dive booths are built on every corner, which give free online internet type of access, which was stifled by the megacorps. Doom launches environmental cleanups. He actually feels an emotion he may have never felt before, doubt, bordering on regret. It was the drugs. He simply wanted to show Americans the consequences of their stupidity, but admits in a rare moment of weakness that he lost control. And then to the skull of Avatar, which he has on a nearby stand, as you do, he says, I did not intend to kill you. You held too many secrets. Doom's presidential cabinet and inner circle made up of confidants and compatriots from earlier in the series, fear that his address damaged his credibility beyond repair, but with, you know, showing the corpse of the guy he just killed. One of his old buddies wonders if the alien juice drove Doom mad or simply removed a facade. President Doom wonders that as well, again addressing the skull of Avatar and delivers a pretty awesome Shakespearean soliloquy. You have touched me where I am most vulnerable, my intellect. You perceived my, you perverted my perceptions. Even in death, you cripple me with questions. Did you have an American dream? Meanwhile, cold chemical rain falls down on the White House like gunfire. There is the faint hit of screams among the martial drum rolls of thunder. Something is coming under the cover of the storm. The end. President Doom, can you show me on the doll where Avatar touched you? <laughs> now, you may call this a comic book. I prefer to think of it as a political science textbook. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I liked about the Doom 2099 series as a whole, and no surprise, it is my favorite comic series of all time, is that Doom is not portrayed as a villain, actually. He is the anti-hero. He is the sort of that Shakespearean mix of nobility and strength. Um, and really that, and, and I think Doom works, I'm, I'm a fan of Doom, I think he works best as an anti-hero rather than a, you know, mustache-twirling villain. And I think Stan and Jack set that up right from the start. Well, I think the fact that they did the 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 annual that had his origin yeah. was unprecedented at at that time to have a villain have that kind of focus in a book and to have that many that much depth to his character. Uh, so I agree with you that they they didn't just want him to be a mustache twirler, although he had possibly the weakest introduction of a major character that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Er in in those early days, you don't know what's going to stick. You just 
I mean, there is a sense of in the Marvel method of making it up as you go along and stumbling into really bad ideas sometimes and stumbling into really good ones sometimes too. When you when you consider though that that was his introduction, it's almost amazing that he's become the character that he has. Right. You know, sending them back for Blackbeard's treasure. <sighs> good times. See? Or or not. <laughs> or not. <laughs> well, the thing could totally look like a pirate. All right, maybe not. Uh, <laughs> no, just, just put a beard on him. That, that's how you be a pirate. Work an eye patch. Eye patch on the thing could work. Yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't notice the uh, orange rock skin at all. He's got. A, he's got yeah. scurvy. It's a scurvy condition. <laughs> Not enough vitamin C. Not Scurvy. enough oranges. It turned him orange. <laughs> oh, boo! <laughs> but I, I got to say, for for this particular series, uh, this artwork is quite a letdown from Pat Broderick. It is. It is. Now he had. I can't remember it's off off the top of my head of if Broderick comes back in later, uh, uh, in later issues. But certainly that was one of the highlights of the the first, you know, those first thirty. Issues was Broderick's art, and this is certainly a change of pace. Having Warren Ellis you know, do do the writing as well, I think, took it in a in a different direction. Warren Ellis is very hit and miss with me. I agree. Uh, he he's one of these guys who I feel like he gets a bit full of himself and pretentious sometimes. Uh, you know, and and starts feeling like, well, if if you don't, if you're not entertained by my writing, that means you're not smart. You can just say he's British. We understand. You know, Andy Leyland listens. Comic book writer that way, but it seems to be. I mean, you know, when when somebody doesn't get your work, your first instinct should be to question whether or not you presented it well. <laughs> not to just automatically assume that that person is stupid because they don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that bothers me a little bit when uh, you know, when people have that attitude and I find that you know Warren Ellis has it to some extent Grant Morrison, Mark Miller. Well, what about when people don't get my jokes? <laughs> Alan Moore. <laughs> well, Alan Alan Moore is in a class by himself with that. Yes. Yes. And, and 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 very to I believe very hypocritical in some of his criticism, he you know he criticizes he criticizes people for being uh, derivative and yet, in its own way, isn't all his work derivative to some extent? I mean, none of these are original characters. He's always taking other people's things and and playing with them, and then he complains when people take what he did and play with it. Yeah. I mean, very clearly, and you know, obviously, Watchmen. You know, he wanted, you know, the, the his, his original pitch was, I guess, literally some of the Charlton characters. And obviously League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you know, takes public domain characters. So, Yeah. And yet he Certainly. complains when any, whenever anybody takes one of his ideas and runs with right. it. Right. So that, that bothers me a little. Mm-hmm. And, and he questions, you know, he, he's one of these guys who is always questioning the intelligence of the people who are reading his work. Seems to me like that's kind of like biting the hand that feeds you. Right. And I guess it's like, and I guess it's Ellis who has the reputation of being the superhero writer who pretty much hates superheroes. I guess Mark Millar fits into that a little bit as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's my commentary. <laughs> we hear Ellis uh. sighing and grumbling. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It, 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 that, that, 
that does irritate me though when when people have those attitudes. Why are you here? Just that that's all I I always just come back to that same thought with then mostly write. with mostly with Warren Ellis. Which, why are you here? You're it, a, it, you're a fine writer. Go write somewhere else. Get I out mean, of my comic book. I mean, there actually is some great prose in here. Yeah. I mean, there's some obviously skilled writing in 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 specifically in Warren Ellis's work. Those and I had you know if you if if you want to write literature, if you want to write novels, if you want to write short stories, write them. Why are you writing in this medium if you don't? Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I don't mm-hmm. question the intelligence or talent of any of them. Of any of the people we've mentioned, I think right. they're all very talented writers. Uh, but if if you don't like the medium, then don't write for it. <laughs> find find something else to do. There there are other literary mediums that will make you more money than this. Go go into one of them. Yeah. <sighs> Independent time. Oh Independent no, time. no! Whoa 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 oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Wait, I meant oh. I meant DC time. No no no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was, just, I was just teasing with you. Yeah, of course. No. Anybody got any comments about uh, about the cover? This it's reminds amazing. me of uh, the animation in Pink Floyd: The Wall, with yes. the birds overhead. You know, with the planes dropping the bombs, and the the Statue of Liberty is a is a skeleton, and she's holding a doom mask in her hand. I, this is an awesome. I, this this cover is great. Yeah, I mean, I I think it it does sets it sets the tone for what's inside the book, and that that's all a and makes it look interesting, and that that's what a cover's supposed to do. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I I think art wise, the cover is the highlight of the book. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I like one of my favorite is uh, uh, two issues before I think it is the first part of the arc is uh, is a uh, doom uh, carving his face as the fifth. Head on Mount Rushmore, which yep. is a pretty good cover as well. I don't know. I don't know if that's true to the character though, because I think Doom. I think Doom oh, would he, make himself the only face. I was gonna say, he, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, that whole was, sharing sharing credit thing. Yeah, he wouldn't have left the other four there. No. It would. It would be like the uh, the Phantom Zone villains in Superman Two. <laughs> they would change the faces and smash the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, do we have a grade? Are we going to do the grades on this? Yeah, give it a grade. Oh, the cover, I would give a B plus, A minus for the, for the cover. Internal art. Mm, yeah, the art brings it down. C, C minus. Story. The, the story's the interesting. Uh, probably a B for the story. I, I would probably want to read more of it, though. Uh, those, yeah. those are my grades. Yeah, the art is standard mid '90s fair, and that's not a compliment necessarily. I I like the Doom crest. I think that's a yes. Oh yeah, the, president. the presidential seal. Yeah, is that his current? Is that have anything to do with this? Like, does that have, that crest have a history, or is that only for Doom '99? This particular crest, or is that because uh, yeah. he was the president and this was created yeah. for that? I believe that's the case. And it got it, you know, it's got a little bit of American Eagle to it. Mm-hmm. You know, with the little nice... bit of Judge Dread badge. Yeah, exactly. Mm, the big D on it. The all the yeah, yeah. I'm trying to say calligraphy. There, see, I said it because I wasn't trying to say it. But yeah, whatever. <laughs> what? The big calligraphy D. There, I said it. 
All right, I'm I'm giving the cover a B, the interior artwork a D, and the story a C plus for an overall grade of a C plus. Well, I'm biased. I I I, I grade Doom on the curve. Trust me. Well, then I've you have to give him a D. Best thing to do <laughs> for Doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to explain that to him once. I was giving him a D. It stood for doom. That's to say I stood in the corner for quite some time. Uh, I enjoy I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's one of those things. And, and sometimes the you know, books of the 90s sort of had this. It's sort of, it's more awesome than it is good, if you know what I mean. You know, it has those moments of craziness and a few great moments in it. Mm-hmm. But overall, I'm at, I kind of like The Punisher. And obviously, I'm biased towards the book, so I'm more willing to give it a, a B, though the, some of the internal art does bring it down a little bit. Yeah, the, the cover is absolutely the highlight. I'm, I'm feeling more like with uh, Dr. Bill on this one. It's more in the, the A-. minus. I'd almost give it an A for concept because just the imagery and the way it's combined is awesome, really. The cover. Yes, in right. the cover, and the cover really only. I have said it before. When I said it, I said, I'll never say this again. And you know, I really don't like the 90s. I really, 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 really almost hate the 90s. I think I've read about three series that I actually liked where the this weird, oversaturated color, distended, bizarre morphology and all of everybody's faces and spikes coming through and out of people in green spit bile being part of the yeah doom spending six panels on one page punching the guy's face in now see that was awesome it wasn't necessarily necessarily good good. but it was awesome internal art i'd give maybe like a c minus like it there are moments where it does work and then it just goes kind of back to being crap uh story concept I like. I mean, you're reading you're reading issue three of seven. Yeah. So but, you do have that middle of the story. Again, execution. I'm. I don't know. There's something about the the pace versus the writing style right. I mean, does the not first, match. I just it, yeah. The, the first half of the book is basically. Yeah. The one scene. Yeah, I'd say maybe. B minus on the writing, C ish overall. So A. Sure. <laughs> It's that's your curve not an easy grader i was gonna say i wish i had you when i was in college i know right <laughs> go stand in the corner young lady go stand with corum yes oh that was hmm. not even really a pun nice segue nice segue that would so be, do we have an independent that would be corum jahelum ursil all right yeah that's well, we're the name. Just start with this now Almost uh, 10 to 15% of the words in this comic are almost incomprehensible and made up. Yep. So I'm going to do my best to pronounce them consistently, if not correctly. So. And, and I, the horrible pronouncer, will try to help you as well. <laughs> and I will sit silently and laugh at you. Because <laughs> I have read these hard, uh, I have read these books, the, uh, the book books. You know, with the pages and the letters and the stuff with no art. Oh, yeah, it took me forever with no pictures. Weird. Mm. But I shut up now. (laughs) 
All right, this is my show now. So the book that I chose is The Chronicles of Korra. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> oh, okay. What did you say? Yes. <laughs> I don't think Doom would be uh, happy with me if I allowed that to go. <laughs> hmm. All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the first girl that you've had on. You have to be nice to me. I think I've so... been very nice to you. <laughs> you... Until now. So... <laughs> My book is The Chronicles of Corum, The Knight of the Swords, Issue 1, from January of 1986. This was the first issue of the 12-issue limited series adaptation that First Comics did of Michael Moorcock's classic fantasy series, The Swords Trilogy. And that is Corum, the Prince of the... Corum, the Prince in the Scarlet Robe, being the first one of those. Script was by Mike Barron. Pencils by Mike Mignola, inked by Rick Burchett, and colored by Ripley Thornhill. A multi-paragraph opening narration sets the stage for our story, telling us that it takes place during the time of the sword rulers, a rich time and a dark time, ruled in part by chaos. Because this is a fantasy story, oh, and I already said that, and eh, what else? It's a fantasy story, the names are made up, and I'm going to do my best. The two ancient races, the Vadag... Sure. An elf-like race that devotes themselves to intellectual study, and their mortal enemies, the ape-like but equally studious Nadrag, have been locked in a cold war for centuries, each withdrawing further from the world as their strengths have waned. In their absence, the race of men, here called the Mabden, have grown strong, and driven by their greed and fear, they expand. But the old races take no notice of the Mabden until they are forced to, by the workings of the universe, confront their complacency. And by then, it is too late. At Castle Arorn, the most remote of the Vadag's strongholds, Prince Coram is charged by his father, Klonske, to leave the castle and seek news from the other Vadag. They have abilities to communicate and observe through the other planes, but their powers have been waning and they need to know what movements the Nadrag are making in the outside world. Coram agrees and in the morning he leaves on his grand quest to discover what has happened to his kin. After several days' ride without meeting another soul, Coram finds a Mobden war party. He witnesses their leader, Glandith Akre, torturing and killing prisoners of war, seemingly for fun. He rides away from the encounter, deeply disturbed by what he's seen. Within a few hours, he reaches the Vadag castle and finds it razed to the ground. Everything of value has been taken, and the corpses of the dead desecrated. As the same scene is repeated again and again, Prince Coram runs out of tears to shed. He realizes that after so long a stalemate, the Vadag and Nadrag have forgotten how to wage war. Eventually, he comes across a Mobden village terrorized by the war party. They fearfully explain that it is common for Mobden to kill one another, and repeatedly call Coram a Shefenhau, a demon. As his journey stretches out for weeks, Coram still can't comprehend why the Mobden are attacking. What do they fear from the older races? As the Mobden lands become more and more densely populated, he must use his abilities to shift into other planes in order to hide. Coram reaches the final castle and finds much the same. As he carries the Vadag corpses to a, cor to a funeral pyre, one of the Mobden soldiers groans. Coram takes no notice of him until the soldier cries out, Help me, master. Removing the helmet, Coram is shocked to discover that the soldier is a Nadrag. 
He tries to remind the soldier of his noble heritage. Nadrag were once honorable. How could he serve murderers like the Mob Den? The Nadrag spits at him that all of the Nadrag serve Mob Den. They were conquered after the last war and are now used like dogs to track down the remaining Vadag. Coram tries to find common ground with the enslaved Nadrag, but even now the two ancient races can't see past their ancestral feud. The Nadag told the Mob Den before they abandoned him that there was one last stronghold far to the west, Castle Erorn. As Coram rides away, the Nadrag begs for death, but Coram does not know how to kill. The dying Nadrag tells him, you must learn. Coram arrives home just in time to watch the castle collapse in flames. His family is strung up on a tree like pieces of meat as the mob den engage in their drunken revelry. As he counts the corpses, his grief turns to rage. And in that moment, Prince Coram becomes a Sheffenhau, an avenging spirit. He attacks the mob den in a blind fury, learning there how to kill. Eventually, he is overpowered and captured. He has finally learned how to fight like the mob den, but it is too late. Glandith Akrae decides to sport with Coram, and by sport with, I mean brutally torture. Coram asks why, and Glandith replies, We hate your sorcery and your superior heirs. We desire your land and goods, and so we will kill you. Coram claims that they have no sorcery, only a little bit of knowledge, but Glendith is tired of listening. It was pride and complacency that brought down the great races, and now he will teach the last survivor humility, starting with his right eye. Mercifully, Coram faints. In his dream, he sees his sister once again, but as he tries to reach out to her, the mob den cut off his hand. Jolted back to wakefulness, Coram desperately concentrates all of his power to move himself and the board he is bound to to another plane. He seems to disappear and the mob den scatter to look for him. Glad for even a moment's rest, he tries to gather his wits, but is too exhausted. Hearing rustling in the woods, he fears that the mob den are returning, but instead, a pair of brown hairy figures appear and carry him into the woods as he falls back into unconsciousness. Coram finally awakes in a woodland clearing with only one thought on his mind, to get savage revenge on the men who killed his family and left him a cripple. The Sasquatch-like creature who found him, named Serde, is shocked by the sentiment. Vadag do not fight like that, but Coram replies, I do. I am the first to learn to kill with malice. When Coram tries to leave the clearing on his search for vengeance, Serde says he's going in the wrong direction. Coram refuses to listen. Serde just keeps pointing out at the sea. So the Sasquatch clocks him in the head with a rock and picks him up, carrying Coram to the shore, where a large castle and walkway appear to have materialized out of thin air. End of issue one. End of very long issue one. Yeah. It was dense, obviously. Well, it's based on a high fantasy novel, and, you know, sometimes they can be a little dense at the beginning. And that's mm-hmm. the thing, is it, 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 was, it was definitely a good issue, and it's not that the writing was bad or anything, it's just that there's a lot of it. That I think I've... This, there's like a synchronicity, though, because the story was dense, and as I'm hearing it, it makes me feel dense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Again, yeah. it's you know it's it, it's also tricky because the book the the comic is from eighty five, but the novel itself is from seventy one. Is that what we said? Something. So like it's that. well over forty years, and there's 
some of this has almost become cliche in fantasy. The anti-sorcerer approach, you know, we hate magic, we want to stomp out magic. It's something that I've run across in other high fantasy novels, but then again, this one came first. This one sort of was in that first wave yeah, of the so trend. You, that's, it's always tricky when you're reading something older and you wonder how much it influenced the field, but you're reading them uh, reading them out of order. Right. We've we've had that a lot on the show when we did older issues of X Men or Wolverine or you know any, anything that's kind of become a classic story, and you you know you go through it and you start thinking, well, it sounds kind of cliche, but you have to remember at the time it came out, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, have you? Has anybody read any of the Michael Moorcock novels besides myself here? No, that- I have not. Yeah, see, this this is based on um, Michael Moorcock created uh, a multiverse, and in later books, Quorum, uh, the Quorum series was the first series of novels I read, and in it he meets a character named Elric. You may be familiar oh, with. I do. Right, I do right. know Elric. Would recognize that name. Yes, and, and he meets. Uh, let's. I can't remember in which book it is. But he meets Elric at a point in Elric's life where he has already met Quorum, but this is the first time that Quorum has met Elric. And then... Wibbly-wobbly. Yes, it, it, it was wibbly-wobbly before wibbly-wobbly was a word. <laughs> so, and then later, the reverse happens. Uh, maybe there was two series, I think, The Prince in the Red Robe was the first, and then The Prince with the Silver Hand, I think, is the second like three issue series yes. swords trilogy is the first one the prince in the scarlet robe and then uh the prince with the skill with the silver hand and then later when he meets uh elric you know the situation is reversed uh there's also other characters um the eternal champion is just that it's it's a hero who exists in many different realities times and worlds and they all fight for the cosmic balance which is between law and chaos and Elric, because uh, he's like a darker character, he carries the sword uh, Stormbringer, which sucks souls, and he's more of a dark, dark character, whereas Korm is more of a a, uh, a a lighter character. I mean, he is dark, but he's not as dark, dark, dark as the other one. The other major um, Eternal Champion character is, is uh, Dorian Hawkmoon, which... The first also did a comic book series of that, and I, I have those, and I also have the books. And Hawkmoon takes place on an almost like an alternate Earth to where there's a mixture of technology and magic. And it takes most of it takes place in Europe, which is a pretty uh, interesting uh, read a, as well. Uh, but overall, uh, my through different stories and different short stories, um, Michael Moorcock has created – or had in print, or made reference to in other literature, uh, I'd say at least 25, 30 different versions of the Eternal Champion overall. And it's it's really, you can really get, get involved. I haven't read any of the books in well over probably, well, if I read it in high school, it's been well over 25 years. And I read some when I was in, in the Navy after I just got out of high school. So, But yeah, it's it, it's a lot, and then, like you guys were saying, it is kind of cliche. But you got to remember how long ago this this you know this was written. Yeah, I mean, even 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 those things you were saying, even the Stormbringer sword and that sort of thing, it's almost you know, eye rolling. Having read Terry Brooks and Terry Goodkind and 
you mm-hmm. know, 50, 75 fantasy novels since then. But, you know, this came before so much of that that I've that I've read since. Right. And to say that it's cliche, even in quotation marks, because it did come before all of those other texts, it's still a great story. Like, I really, really, really enjoyed this issue. And I just picked it up on a whim. I picked up issues one and two. And I'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes out for more. Um, The art was a little odd for me just at the very beginning because it is incredibly... Very, it's very like linear and sort of sketchy, and then painted over in these washes of color. And I was just sort of like, "What is going on with this?" But then, by about page three or four, I was like, "Oh, this is going for that sort of impressionist watercolor painting feeling that you would have that of of the high fantasy, like a Conan novel covers, and and that sort of feeling." And that I was, was like, oh, it Frank Frazetta type of type yeah. of is it is style. it actually painted or is it colored in a it's, way to try and make it simulate painted it's it's colored it's not officially it's not actually painted but it does um the background sort of speaks to that yeah, yeah the backgrounds in particular that the backgrounds are very lightly colored in whereas the characters that are in the foreground are, are very very colorful and so it's got that sort of feeling of depth and washed colors and all that sort of feeling now i i haven't read a lot of uh hellboy which is Mignola's, uh, you know, magnum opus. Yeah, exactly. Life, life's work you. now. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I, I get the impression that that is just part of his style, not necessarily unique to this book. And I don't have right. this book in front of me either. But I think that is just a, a visual that he likes. I mean, he does have, uh, from what I've seen, there's almost that washed out look, uh, and yet darker at the same time. Right. Uh, you know, very, very moody, his, right. his artwork is. And I haven't read uh, very much Hellboy either. I love the Hellboy movies. But I've wanted to read Hellboy, and I know Mignola is a great, great artist, and that really came through in this issue. That it, the, the writing is okay, the art is great, but the story itself is excellent. You know, the... The story is better than the writing, if that makes sense, because the writing is just so dense because it's trying to convey so much information very, very quickly. Adapting is hard from one medium to another. So, you know, how much of that feel do you take? This is, in essence, a quarter of the first novel. Right. Each book was adapted into a four issue series the way I understand it the way I understand it. So this is one quarter of a pretty thick high fantasy novel. How many pages was that in this book? Uh, 23. Wow. No, wow. six. 26. I, th- I thought it was longer based on yeah, the synopsis. They... Hmm. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, I don't have it in front of me to review it, obviously, so I'm, I'm working off your impressions, basically. But, uh, you know, I would think that the big issue with trying to take that dense of a story and compress it into a 23-page comic, uh, I would think you might have some serious problems with pacing. Unless you do a masterful job of writing it. Well, that and that's the thing, is that the pace is a little bit odd, but it works. That about half of that recap is the first seven or eight pages. Which, which would, in essence, be the first hundred pages of any fantasy novel. Exactly. Which, if you read them, you know, one of the sort of concepts of reading a high fantasy series is just get through the first hundred pages, then it really gets good. 
I mean, you, that is a very common. Uh, even fans of fantasy novels will 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 tell you that re- regularly. Yeah, you sort of have to get through the world building exactly to get to the story. And the first the first page of the comic is a splash page with five paragraphs of world building and setting the stage. The second page has three paragraphs of narration. The third page has six paragraphs of then it's three, five, four, three. And then from that point on, it becomes a little bit more of a conventional comic with more dialogue and less narration. Yeah, but it yeah, but it, it takes a little while to get to that point. Yeah, it just it just takes a little while to explain what's yeah, going on from, very quickly. From reading the novels, what I remember, there's a lot of setup. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And and also, I just did a quick little glance. I Elric of Melnabone, or Bone, because there's a little thingy above the E. <laughs> he, uh, um, it says that that was uh, basically was first introduced in a short story uh, in 1961. Oh wow! And then I was going to say these are fairly old. Yeah. So he had he he. He was kicking around this sort of whole world in his head for quite some time. Right, and then there was other short stories, and then and then the first appearance in an original novel was in 1973, and also Elric appeared in uh, Conan the Barbarian, issue 14 in 1972. Yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is yeah. There, there's a lot there. If somebody wants, you know, it's it's kind of hidden, and a lot of people don't realize how. A lot. I mean, Michael Moorcock's a lot of his novels all cross each other, right? You know, much like in the way that a lot of Stephen King novels nowadays right. cross over right. as, as well. And longtime readers will will catch those, right? Yeah, so. I don't mind. And you know, with a comic like this, I don't mind taking time reading my comics. Now, I you know, prefer to have more word balloons and thought bubbles like you get toward towards the end of this issue than the narrations and captions, but I like story just in general as a comics guy. Uh, writing is first for me and art is second, uh, a distant second actually to me. So I'd rather have a little too much writing, spend a little too much time with the comic than to have too little writing and whip through it too quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what was the cover price of that? That was probably like one ninety five. Uh, one seventy five. One seventy five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bargain. <laughs> yeah, I I think so. Um, I, I I think it's definitely worth its price. It is a very well drawn comic, and you get a lot of story. And I I will say this is the it it was sort of dry, and I had to skim over the best part of the book very quickly in my recap because I was like, oh god, this recap is already almost two and a half pages. Like I need to I get on with it, but. The, the story really does pick up from the point where Coram has now gone on his journey and seen the atrocities of man and comes home. And at that point, shit gets real. Stupid that muggles. <laughs> Damn muggles. Uh, but at, at that point, he sees, okay, now my family is dead and my house is burned to the ground and they took all of our stuff and they raped my mom and okay, now I'm going to kill them all. And that's where the story really sort of picks up. And there is a great sequence, which I'm sure this was an awesome thing in the novel and actually does translate pretty well, that there's been a recurring caption every couple of pages of 
and so it was that Coram discovered blank. And so you had, and so it was Coram discovered sorrow when he saw the first mm -hmm. castle that had been sacked. And so it was that Coram discovered grief when he sees his family dead. And then he sees that his mother has been violated, possibly posthumously. And at this point, Coram discovers rage. And it, and it goes on like this throughout the fight that he has with the Mobden Raiders is Prince Coram had learned to kill. As he twisted the spear, he learned cruelty. As he, he faked an injury, he had learned cunning. And, and so on and so on. And it's actually a really well-integrated section of, or a sort of aspect of the story that it doesn't seem intrusive. That you're still getting that sense of being in his head without being actually in his head in the mm -hmm. same way that you are in a comic as opposed to a novel. But attempting to do sort of a standard narrative technique. Yeah. In a literary technique. And yeah. I appreciate when people can use those in comics and use them well. And I think it works really well in this one. I I will tell anybody that wants to that if you decide to start reading this, don't expect a happy ending. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. Uh, because well, now I'm not reading it. Well, I mean it's it, Well, it, we finished it, the book and he's missing a hand and an eye and his family's dead. And so. that's just the yeah. first issue. <laughs> so it's all uphill from here. That's right. Um if I remember correctly, very few of the um, Eternal Champions really ever have a happy ending. And usually all of them seek a city called Tantalorn is uh, the name of, of it, the Eternal City. And I think only one of them really finds it. And then I think he's forced to leave as well. I think that either is Hawkmoon or... Oh, I can't remember the other ones. It's, it's been so long. It's been so long. But it's, but it's good. Maybe I'll, I've got some of the hardcovers. I might go back and read them because this is – it's something I hadn't even thought about in the longest time. And I saw that you picked this book and I was like, oh, I remember all this. This is awesome. So I was, it, was, it was great to see that reaction because I assumed she had, pick as, she had picked as obscure a book as I had. You know, <laughs> last time I was on, a book no one had ever heard of, cared <laughs> to hear of, will ever hear of again. I thought she had gone down that uh, relatively geeky Middleton path. I don't think that's <laughs> an apt I'm glad to see that's not the case. I, I don't think that's a fair description. I think we all were pretty uh, intrigued by the book you brought last time. Okay, well, Paul, you all picked name the killer. it. That was no fun. It was the Maze Agency. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it can't be as obscure as Apollo Smile. <clears throat> uh, now, that was one of the worst books Apollo ever. Smile. But, now but, the other thing, other thing I liked about this, uh, about this issue that Emily brought is the, uh, you know, a lot of these independents, similar to to the one I had last time, you know, there are no outside ads; it's all house ads. Uh, I mean, that's why they're twenty six, uh, twenty six pages of story. But on the inside back cover, is an ad for John Sable Freelance, uh, a two, that, right? a a two issue story. Issues 44 and 45. It doesn't say it, in, but if you squint at the fine print, it says, in about 25 years, these will be covered on the Quarterbin podcast, episodes <laughs> 3 and 8, available to relatively geeky podcast feed. Interesting. Huh. And ladies and gentlemen, that was our shameless promo. <laughs> shameless plug of the day. Please, uh, Professor Allen, are there any other shows that you'd like to pimp at this time? Because we would like to hear. Well, let's see. At the Relatively Geeky 
podcast family. We have my show, The Quarter Bin Podcast, where I talk about my favorite comics, cheap comics. And then I do Uncovering the Bronze Age, which is the journey of me traveling through comics of the 1970s and 80s and learning about an era of comics that I really don't know anything about. And at this point, she's been stumped by Jack Kirby, the Newsboys, and the the Whiz Wagon. Oh, God. I did, I'm going to be honest, I did pick possibly three of the worst issues to start with because I had Kryptonite Nevermore, big, important story, and then I had Denny O'Neill's Batman and the first appearance of Ra's al Ghul, big, important story, and then... Jack Kirby and the Newsboy Whiz Wagon. What is going on? Who are the Harrys? What is going on? <laughs> so at, at some point, I don't know what I took, but I want to take it back. At some point, you just need like a simple Legion story, or yeah. eventually you'll get to something less something, important. Oh God, yeah, something, something. I've got a Tarzan. I'm like that would yeah, be nice. <laughs> it's just a simple story, and we can. Just, no. Okay. No, I'm I'm gonna have to be in production for another two and a half months for this. Oh. Awesome. And then together, because individually we're awesome. Together we're mediocre. Is our show that we do together is Shortbox Showcase, where we talk about you know, specific issues of comics, but also talk about topics uh, within comics. Uh, we say issues in comics as well as issues. Of comics. You see what I did there? I do. Mm. Do so, you like what I did there? Mm. Not really. So Maybe. pretty much that's what you guys did tonight, and we were just guests on your show. Yeah, so if anyone's interested in what Shortbox <laughs> Showcase sounds like, it sounds like this. Pretty much. Without the uh, with without the two other guys. Yeah. <laughs> with that, with, How could it possibly without be good, Statler then? and Waldorf. Uh, <laughs> without the running commentary from the... Peanut Gallery. <laughs> uh, just, you know, uh, and yes, I... I Listen to all of those shows, and I enjoy them very much. I don't want to just give them the short uh, end of the stick here. I have, I to get I have back started, to your... started to listen. Started to. So I, I really I do enjoy them. Don't, do. I don't want to sell it short at all. But I want to go back to your book, uh, and uh, what, how are we rating it? Okay. I'll give it an A, and I've never seen it just because I love the material. <laughs> That's the thing. I, I haven't seen I'm it, gonna so say, I'm, I'm going to abstain. Uh-huh. It's an automatic A. Yeah, you're, mm-hmm. you're uh, slightly biased, like I was with the first issue, perhaps. I mm-hmm. I agree. I mean, it did to me. You know, it, it's it's an issue one, and I think it does a good job of world building, and it makes me want to read number two, which fortunately Emily has. Unfortunately, we don't have three and four yet, so I don't know quite how to handle that myself. Mm. But we don't want to get. Do I want to get halfway through, or do I just want to stay here a quarter of the way through? Uh, you could just read the books. You know, it's that sort of attitude. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure that counts as back talk, but it is really close. <laughs> awesome. So I'd give it, a, I'd give it, I'd, I'd give it a B, B plus. The art on on the inside is terrific. Yeah. I Again, would... it starts off a little slow. You're gonna, you're gonna cut me off there. Awesome. <sighs> No respect. Do you, do you know what I'm saying, gentlemen? This younger. Let me tell you about this younger generation. And Emily, get off my lawn. I was gonna say, do you want me to get off your podcast lawn? It's Professor Dangerfield. No, no respect. <laughs> Never any respect. Yeah, 
I, I would say overall, I, I, I'm a little bit more generous. I'd give it maybe like an A minus. That it's a, it is a excellent story, adequately well told. The art is just absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I haven't read much of Mignola's, you know, stuff that he's drawn. But if that's, you know, this is just sort of his style, then I'll just say it's very well suited for this book, even if he didn't change his style to fit the story. Um, a couple of slow moments and a little bit of a little bit of a hurdle getting into it for the first couple of pages, but it, it was it was very good. Yeah, I'd say A minus. Well, you know what? I'm gonna I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna give it a rating, but I'm gonna say the last three independents uh, on the shows that I've been on with Doctor Bill have been <laughs> uh, Apollo Smile, <laughs> The Maze Agency, and this one. And I think we, we're kind of climbing a ladder here. We went from Apollo Smile, which was among the dreck of the comic universe. Then we went to Maze Agency, which I thought was kind of intriguing and interesting sounding and something that I might be interested in. To this one, that sounds like something that if you can dive into it, uh, would probably have a really good payoff. So I'm, I'm giving this the highest rating of the three books that I am not equipped to actually give letter grades to you know sometimes i feel that way too in class <laughs> i get to the end of the semester and i just i don't you know what to do with these students don't don't say that in the internet public like you, no you what i meant was i just take out that two-faced coin pass or <laughs> fail. pass or fail Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.